You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 13, we're going to read verses 31 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, when he had gone out, that is, Judas is the he, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Bow our heads in prayer before we begin. Our God, we come to your word now, and we we are thankful for what you have revealed in it concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and concerning our salvation and how we ought to live, and even the failures and failings and falterings of men like Peter and other saints whose lives are admirable for us in many ways, and we can learn great things from them. And we pray that you would teach us now through the failings of a man, the faithfulness of the God-man. Help us to see in here a picture of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Help us to see his faithfulness and open our eyes to the truth that we may obey it and love you through it and be sanctified by that truth. Bless our time of study this morning in your word, we pray for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. A few weeks ago, we looked at the uh, one of the disciples, one of the twelve who is notorious and actually infamous, uh, but not for a good reason or in a good way. He is notorious and infamous because of his betrayal of the Lord Jesus, and that is Judas. And now we turn to another disciple who is probably, uh, with Judas, one of the most well-known of the twelve, and that is Peter. Peter is notorious and infamous, but not for any bad reasons. Peter, for all of the good reasons. Uh, Peter was an, uh, a, a leader in the early church. He is one of the apostles. He was a pillar of the church in Jerusalem along with James and John. Uh, he is the, the central feature, the central character of Luke's chronicle of the early church in the, in the book of Acts, the first 12 chapters. That is not to say that Peter is the early or the first pope. We get that out of the way. Peter was not the first pope. Now, that is not a declaration that needs to be defended, by the way. That is a declaration that just needs to be said. It's patently obvious in the New Testament that Peter was not the first pope. He is one of the greatest of the saints in the New Testament and a man whose, whose life and ministry and whose teaching is, is a model for us in many ways. But saying all of those good things about Peter, that, that does not mean that Peter was without his faults. And we recognize that. Just to, just to mention Peter's name calls to our mind all kinds of, of little uh, failings that he had in the Gospels. Of all the disciples, Peter is the most prominent in all of the four Gospels. He is often the spokesman for the Twelve. He's kind of an, an impetuous man, uh, a, a very ambitious, aggressive, um, oh, what do you call it, uh, a go-getter type man. The type of man who just saw something and went after it. 
Peter speaks his mind. He's not like Judas. Judas was a double-tongued, double-souled, double-minded, double-hearted man. He would say one thing and mean another, but not Peter. When Peter spoke, you knew exactly where his heart was at. He just said whatever was on his mind and whatever was on his heart. Oftentimes, speaking for the rest of the disciples, sometimes, well, always well-intentioned, but sometimes very wrong. And of all of the failings and falterings of Peter that we read in the New Testament, and by the way, the Gospels are not all of them, can you think of one episode outside of the four Gospels where Peter kind of missed the boat just a little bit? Galatians chapter 2, when Paul had to confront him. So even after the resurrection and after the Pentecost, Peter was one of those guys who just not perfect. He wasn't perfect. But of all of his failings, probably the most well-known is when he denied the Lord Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. And that takes us to John 13. And, and here Jesus is predicting that. Uh, this is, this is well-known not only to us and probably the most memorable of Peter's failings, not just to us, but I think also to the rest of the gospel writers. It is interesting to note that the prediction of Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus, that prediction is recorded in all four Gospels. And the actual be- denial itself is also recorded in all four Gospels. Now I ask myself, why is that? Why did all four Gospel writers record it? I assume that once one of the Gospels was published, that it became circulated widely. I believe that to be the case. And I believe that, that, not in, that all of the Gospel writers did not write ignorant of the other Gospels. Uh, John, I think, is evidence of that. John seems to know what Matthew, Mark, and Luke recorded because he chooses stuff that is unique only to himself, only to John's Gospel. So why then do all four Gospel writers record Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus? Not only the prophecy of it, but the actual denial. Were those four Gospel writers just trying to whoop up on Peter? Right? Were they, were they just a little jealous? He's the leader. He always thinks he's right. He's talking. He's kind of the man in Jerusalem, an elder, a shepherd there. He writes books. He must think he's something. We'll take him down a couple of notches by reminding everybody of Peter's failings. Why did they record Peter's denial? I think it was for this reason. In the failure of Peter, it is against the backdrop of the failure of Peter that the faithfulness of Jesus is seen as all that much more glorious and remarkable. It is really against the... When you consider what Peter did and how Jesus still loved him, still saved him, still forgave him, still commissioned him to be an apostle, in spite of that glaring failure in his life, then that just magnifies the grace of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ. I think it magnifies who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for his sheep. So we're in John chapter 13. We're going to finish it up today. We looked already at three statements that Jesus gives in verses 31 through 35. Three statements, really, which are three themes introduced that will be unfolded in greater detail in the rest of this upper room or farewell discourse. The glory of God in the death of Christ, the departure of Christ, and the love for one another. Those three themes will sort of carry all the way through the rest of this discourse. And our our passage today, verses 36 through 38, kind of breaks into a a division, very natural division. Um, First, we're going to notice Peter's question is presented. In verse 36, the first part of that. Then we're going to notice Peter's courage is promised and then his cowardice is predicted. So that's our outline for this morning if you're taking notes and following along. His question presented, his courage promised, and then his cowardice is predicted. Let's begin with verse 36. Peter's question is presented. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, 
it is interesting that that is the thing that sort of catches Peter's attention. By the way, Peter, I think, here is speaking, again, on behalf of the other disciples. It is difficult to imagine that amongst those other 11 men that not one of them had thought of asking this question. I think that this was probably on the minds and the hearts of all of the other uh, 10 men who were there that night. When Jesus spoke of the glory of God in, in His death, that the Son of Man is glorified and God will glorify Himself in Him, that His death would result in not only the Son of Man's glory, but also the glory of the Father in that event. That didn't seem to catch Peter's attention because he doesn't ask any questions about that. Neither does Peter sort of fixate upon the command, the new command, to love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a high standard. But Peter's mind doesn't seem to catch that and fixate upon the requirement to love one another as the Savior has loved us. What is it that catches Peter's attention? When Jesus said, I am leaving, verse 33, Little children, I am with you a while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I can imagine a bit of a pause there, and I can imagine if I were in that situation, I wouldn't even have heard verses 34 and 35. I wouldn't even have heard anything about the new commandment, loving one another, because that would have been what caught my attention. Hold on, whoa, 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 wait, time out. You're leaving? You're leaving? We've left houses and lands and businesses and family and our hometown, and we have followed you for three years. We have nothing. Every time we have come to Jerusalem, we have been hunted and hounded and in danger of losing our lives. And now we are aware that the religious leaders are intent on killing you and have been for years. They have tried to seize you. Every time we come to Jerusalem, we take our lives into our own hands. We are at risk of being, of being killed by the religious leaders. We have abandoned all of that to follow you. And the religious leaders not only want to kill you, they want to kill us, they want to kill Lazarus. They want to kill anybody that gives any kind of credibility to your claims. And now here we are in Jerusalem, and you have warned us that there is a betrayer among us, and haven't even told us who he is. Because remember, Judas has left, but they thought he was leaving to give money to the poor. So they're still thinking in terms of a betrayer, even amongst them, and they have no idea who it is. And now you're leaving? What do you mean you're leaving? Leaving? I don't think they heard anything else that Jesus said to them at that moment. That is what they would have fixated upon. And that's why Peter asked, whoa, 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 wait, what? you're leaving, where are you going? They want to know where is he going and when is he going and can they follow him? That's what Peter is asking. Where are you going, Lord? They didn't hear anything else. Now, it's not because Jesus had not been telling them that he was going to leave them. Remember, for months as they approached Jerusalem, Jesus has been warning them. The Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and be betrayed into the hands of sinners and they will beat him and scourge him and crucify him and mock him. They will put him to death and he will rise again. Jesus has told them that on a number of occasions. You can read of those predictions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the Synoptic Gospels. Over and over again, Jesus told them that. But those words did not even seem to, did not even seem to, to, to get into their head or into their hearts. I don't think they understood the significance of what Jesus said, even when he predicted his own death. This is not the first time he's mentioned it. And even now they seem completely clueless as to what the plan and the purpose of him coming to Jerusalem was. And they're only hours prior to his actual arrest in the garden in chapter 18. This is only going to be a couple of hours away. They still don't get it. They still don't get it. What is it that kept the disciples from understanding what Jesus was going to do? What is it that kept the disciples from understanding that he was going to leave soon? And what he, what he meant when he said, I'm going away? You know what it was? They had preconceived notions of what the Messiah was going to do. They had preconceived ideas of what Jesus was in, doing in Jerusalem. And so when he speaks of going there and suffering 
and dying and rising again. They didn't even have categories to process that information. They didn't make any sense to them at all. So entrenched in their messianic expectations that the Messiah would return or that he would come, that he would set up a kingdom and establish the throne of David and rule in Jerusalem over the nations, so entrenched was that thinking in their expectation that when Jesus said, that's not yet, and by the way, I believe that that will happen, exactly as the prophets have predicted it. Even though Jesus said, that is not yet, the Son of Man must do this first, they couldn't even process that because all they could think of was their preconceived notions and their preconceived expectations. Sometimes our traditions and our preconceived notions keep us from receiving spiritual truth. Cornell talked about this a little bit this morning. Our preconceived notions can keep us from receiving spiritual truth. It is possible for us to grow up in an environment, in a church, and we have traditions, we have things that we have received, things that we have been taught, things that we have assumed, things that we grew up with, that, that those things become entrenched in our thinking and in our hearts, that it takes sometimes years for the truth of something to pound away at that and to gain any headway in our hearts when, when we are entrenched in our traditions and our preconceived notions and expectations. A few weeks ago, Cornell in adult Sunday school class challenged us in going through Colossians. He said, next week, come up with uh, silly or ridiculous or, or wrong things that you have believed in the past that you now no longer believe and come prepared to share those in class. And, and so some people did. And after he issued that challenge, I said, if I start sharing that, I mean, that's going to take the whole class. I mean, I've got a ton of these things. I mean, in fact, every, not every, but many of the goofy, ridiculous things that I have critiqued in our newsletter have been things that I believed at one time or another. And I spent 16, 16 months uh, correcting something. And, and some people say, how do you know what these people believe so well? It's because I used to, this is how I used to think. I used to think that God spoke to us in, in visions and, and dreams and little personal nudgings and promptings and the still small voice. I mean, Scripture says that the, shepherd, the sheep will hear the shepherd's voice, right? And so ought we not to expect these kinds of revelations? I once thought that. I don't anymore. I once thought that we, it was our, our purview to be able to bind Satan and rebuke Satan and do exorcisms. I once tried to exorcise a demon out of a cat. That's no joke. That's no joke. Now listen... Those kind do not come out except by fasting and prayer. <laughs> because a cat, a demon and his cat are not easily parted. And that is in the white spaces implied in the Greek in the Bible. I know it's in there. I've read it. A demon and his cat are not easily parted. Uh, I have all kinds of goofy things that I have believed. Last week, uh, Dave's message on eldership was another example of this. Dave's message on eldership. By the way, that was a great message. I did not oversell that, as you as you saw. Um, there was a time when I had notions of, of church eldership and deacons and what the structure of a church leadership should look like and what an elder was and what a pastor was. And for years it took to, of, of seeing the truth and reading the truth and understanding the truth and slowly before I finally realized, hold on a second, hold on a second, what I have believed about this for years is all wrong. And what I learned in Bible college is all wrong. And what I have practiced is all wrong. It took years for that to happen. Sometimes we have these preconceived notions and ideas and we get entrenched in them and it takes a while for the truth to assault that and to break that down before we finally are able to actually process spiritual truth. After Dave's message this last Friday, I was talking with some friends, and they uh, mentioned um, something called the Moses model of leadership. Now, if you come out of a Calvary Chapel background or something similar to a Calvary Chapel background, you have heard that, the Moses model of leadership, church leadership. And here's the Moses model. It comes out of the book of Exodus where 
you had Moses and then you had the 70 elders underneath of him and Moses got revelation from God and then the 70 elders underneath of him implemented that in the nation of Israel. So Moses was the channel of God's revelation and blessing and he would give that to the elders who were below him and they would implement that among the congregation. And so that's the Moses model of leadership. So they have a pastor who functions as Moses and then they have elders who function underneath the direction of the pastor who operates, of course, under the direction of God. Now, after Dave's message, if you cannot see the error and the flaws in that, if it does not become readily apparent, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, but it is, it is a completely erroneous structure of church doctrine and uh, church government. And I had a, a friend that I used to discuss this Moses model of leadership with on a regular basis, and I would tell him it's completely unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical. You can't go to the Old Testament and grab some notion of what eldership is from the Old Testament when the church did not even exist and import that into the New Testament and then read the entire New Testament in light of something you preconceive from the Old Testament. You, you can't do that. And so one of the friends that we were discussing this with, and not having a disagreement amongst us, but he said, how is it then that they read through the New Testament, they read of elders and deacons, how do they not see it? And you know why it is? It's because when they read through the New Testament, they read elders and deacons, they read those words and those passages in light of what they already assume to be true. They take those words and those passages and they fit it into their system to make... Those passages fit the system, and they don't even realize they're doing it, rather than just simply letting the text speak for itself. We can do the same thing. Maybe you're thinking of teachers that you really like and admire, and you say, man, I really like that guy, but he's got that one quirky, weird thing that he believes. And if I could just change that one thing, he would agree with me perfectly, and then he would be right in everything. Right? You think that. Maybe you're thinking of that person or someone you know. This is the danger with all of us. This is the danger with all of us, not just the people you can think of outside of you, you say, well, Jim, what are your preconceived notions, your preconceived expectations, and your traditions that are not in keeping with Scripture? I don't know. If I knew them, I would change them. I don't know what they are. You don't know what yours are. But we just need to be aware that that exists amongst people and in the church. And Peter's a good example of that. I'm going to go. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. This is going to happen in Jerusalem. And what did they catch out of that? We're going to Jerusalem set up a kingdom. That was their expectation. So everything they heard Jesus say went right over their heads, in one ear and right out the other. They had no categories to process that information. And Peter is in the same place here. Jesus told them, I'm going, and where I go, you cannot come. So notice Peter's courage is promised. That is Peter's... That is Peter's... I'm sorry, there was a spider right here. And uh, I don't know where that came, but I'm going to have to edit that out. Sorry, that freaked me out. <clears throat> I'm usually not scared of spiders, but when they're crawling up your hand while you're preaching, suddenly it's a different thing. Apologize. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? That is Peter's question presented. Now look at his courage promise. Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. That is his promised courage. Now his question is, Lord, where are you going? Notice that Jesus doesn't give him a direct answer to that. What could Jesus have said? He could have said, I came from heaven down here. I'm going back to heaven. I'm going to sit at my Father's right hand and receive the worship of the saints of old and of angels for the rest of eternity. That is where I'm going. I am going back to the glories of heaven that I left before I came down here. He could have said that, but he didn't. Instead, he leaves some mystery in the answer and veils the answer just enough that Peter can't quite understand. It keeps it just a little bit hidden from Peter. And as I mentioned some weeks ago, I think that there is a divine 
purpose in keeping the answer somewhat mysterious to Peter at this point. Because Peter would, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and after the ascension, then he would understand the full significance of what Jesus is saying. But the, the time of his understanding was, was not yet. And so Jesus veils the answer to him just a little bit. And he says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And I want you to notice the omniscience of the Lord Jesus there. Uh, he knew, did, did Jesus know the day of Peter's death? He did, and he knew it was not that day. And Jesus knows that. He knows the timing of the death of all of his sheep. He knows when you're going to die. He has appointed that day. You cannot alter it. You cannot change it. You cannot speed, hurry it. You cannot delay it. He knows the day of the death of all of his sheep. And Jesus knew that this day, the next day, the next morning, the day after this night, he was going to die. And he knew that that day Peter was not going to die. So he says to Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow. Now, Peter had not really asked, Lord, can I follow you? He asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered a question that Peter didn't directly ask. He answers the question, can I follow you? And Jesus says, you can't follow me now. You're going to follow me later. And of course, Jesus is speaking here of salvation. And he says to Peter, with utmost certainty, you will follow me later. Now, what does he mean by that? You will follow me later. Notice the certainty with which Jesus speaks of Peter's arrival in heaven. How could Jesus speak of Peter with certainty of Peter's arrival in heaven? Because Jesus had promised that of all those whom the Father had given to him, he would lose none. And he knows that these 11 men who are with him, that they are saved, that they are his, and that they are his sheep. And he has promised that of these whom the Father has given to me, I will lose not one of them, but I will give them eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. They are in the Son's hand, and the Son holds them, and they are perfectly secure in Christ. This is the security of the believer. Jesus knows that he can speak with absolute certainty of the eventual salvation and glorification of Peter because Peter belongs to him. See, this is not something that he could have said with Judas present because Judas was not saved. And Judas was not going to be saved. And Judas was going to be lost as the son of perdition. But this is something that he could guarantee the other eleven that they will follow him. They will go to glory. Notice that Jesus does not say, I'm going where you cannot follow me now. But if you try really hard and you persevere to the end and you keep believing and you keep the faith and you do what you can, I mean, I've done the rest. If you do what you can, you might make it. You might die and join me. You notice that Jesus doesn't say that? But that's how an Arminian would have to read this verse. That's how anybody who denies the preserving and keeping power of God in salvation would have to read this verse. I'm going to heaven. You try your best. I hope to see you if you make it. But Jesus doesn't say that. You will follow me later. J.C. Ryle in his commentary rightly points out that this may indeed be a veiled reference to the manner of Peter's death. In other words, that Jesus may be speaking sort of a double meaning here. Not only that Peter would follow him and arrive at heaven later, but that Peter would follow the very manner of the Lord's death later. Remember, according to tradition, Peter was crucified upside down. He requested, requ requested according to tradition, to be crucified upside down so that he would not be like his Lord. He didn't feel it worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. So tradition says Peter was crucified upside down. That's how he was martyred rather than deny Christ. This may be a veiled reference to that. Not only would Peter follow him to that destination, but Peter would walk the same road. Peter likewise would be crucified. You cannot follow me in crucifixion to heaven now, but you will follow me in crucifixion to heaven later. That may be what, what Jesus meant by that. So that is his courage promised. Peter, Peter is bold. Peter is bold. 
He is willing to announce to the Lord, to the rest of the disciples, and to anybody else listening, that he was willing and ready to follow Jesus all the way to death. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of tell us a little bit about Peter's insistence at this moment when he, when he mentioned, when Peter said this. Matthew 26, 33 to 35, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then Matthew adds, all of the other disciples said the same thing too. And when Peter says this, I will never deny you. I will follow you to prison and to death. That's how Luke records Peter's words. I will follow you to prison and even to death. And I will never deny you, even though everybody else here may deny you. The other 11 disciples, even though these guys may deny you, and anybody else may deny you, I never will. Never deny you. And the rest of the disciples, mm mm-hmm, that's right. I mean, who wants to not affirm that, right? If you're in that group, you want to, why didn't I say that first? I should have said that first. I should have looked like the strong one. Now all I can do is agree with it. And the rest of the disciples, they were saying the same thing too. And that's, that's the boldness of Peter, and you see his impetuousness there. Now I believe, I believe that at that moment, what Peter said was a true statement in terms of that is exactly how he felt at that moment. See, Peter was not a duplicious man. He was not a deceitful man. He was not somebody who said one thing to the Lord Jesus while meaning something entirely different. That was not Peter. When Peter said, I am willing this night to die for you, that was exactly how Peter felt. It's exactly how he felt. This is Peter's assessment of his own heart. And when Jesus corrects him, we realize that, that Peter's statement is untrue in two senses. First, not only would Peter not die for Jesus, he would flee instead. So it was untrue in that sense. But it is not Peter who would die for Jesus. It is Jesus who would die for Peter. It is the polar opposite in two ways of what was about to transpire. Peter would flee, not die. And Jesus would die for Peter, not Peter for Jesus. The shepherd would die for his sheep. There's something we see here in Peter that I think all of us are prone to, and that is that all of us have a wrong assessment of where our own hearts are. Is it possible for us to measure our own hearts, to evaluate our own hearts in terms of knowing exactly what we would do in a given situation or a given circumstance? Is it possible for us to know ourselves that that well? I don't think it is. Have you heard people preach sermons like this? They get up and they speak of persecution going on, and then they sort of lay the guilt trip on you and say, would you die for Jesus today? Somebody walked into this room, held a gun to your head. Would you take a bullet in the head for Jesus today? And sort of pistol whip you into thinking, wow, I'm just not, I don't know, I'm fearful. I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm sanctified. I, I heard those messages at Bible college. I've heard messages like that. And, I, and I've always used to think, for years I lived under the burden of thinking that the mark of my sanctification was that someday I would grow in the point of holiness where I would be able to say in the affirmative that I could die for Christ and that I would do that. And then if I wasn't able to, to swear by that, then I wasn't nearly as holy or as sanctified as other people. And so I always wanted to pursue the ability to be able to say, yes, today I would die for Christ. But I've come to the conclusion that I can't answer that question and neither can you. You know why? There are days when I am overwhelmed by the grace of Christ and the glory of the cross and His name and the promises of heaven and eternal life and my affection and my love for Christ that I would say, today I want to leave this sin hole and if somebody came up and put a gun to my head, I would just beg them to pull the trigger. I'm done. There are days when that is true. 
But if the situation actually came, would I do that? I don't know. Peter would have sworn at this moment that he was willing to do that. But would I be willing to do that? The best I can say is this. I hope so. I hope that when presented with that difficulty, that trial, or that that temptation, that I would pass with flying colors. I hope that in that moment, by the grace of God, I would not deny the Lord. But I cannot boldly say that I would never do anything to dishonor the Lord under pressure like that. I can't say that. I can say that I hope that I never would. But because I don't know my own heart, I do not know what in that circumstance, at that situation, at that time, what I would actually do. Because I do not trust my own heart. I've learned that. I hope you've learned to do the same thing. When Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked and then asks the question, who can know it? The implied answer is nobody can know the heart. Not only can you not know other people's hearts, you can't even know your own heart. But the next verse says, I, the Lord, test the heart. I, the Lord, try the mind and give to every man according to his deeds and according to his works. The Lord knows the heart, but I don't. In this circumstance, Jesus knew Peter's heart. He knew it. And Peter opened his mouth when he should have remained silent. And by the way, we've all done that, have we not? Yeah, we can, I can totally relate to Peter in this instance. There have been times when I have remained silent and I should have spoken. There are times when I have spoken and I should have remained silent. And I'm not talking about witnessing. I'm talking about just speaking and saying something that is, is proudly arrogant and, and stupid and I shouldn't have said it. And boldly, boldly having confidence in my own ability to do this. I cannot measure my own heart. I cannot try the depths of it. I cannot see into it. No man knows in the circumstances that he has placed how he will respond until he is in the circumstances in which he is placed. So if I were to ask you today, would you be willing to die for Christ today? I think that honestly the best we could say is, I hope I would. But listen, God is not going to give anybody the grace to go through that trial until the time of the trial. Never before. Never before. And until that moment, we cannot say with confidence what we would do. We can say with confidence what we hope we would do, what by God's grace if we rely upon Him that we would do. J.C. Ryle has a helpful comment on this verse in his commentary, and he writes this, Let it be a settled principle in our religion that there is an amount of weakness in all our hearts of which we have no adequate conception and that we never know how far we might fall if we were tempted. We fancy sometimes, like Peter, that there are some things we could not possibly do. We look pitifully upon others who fall and please ourselves in the thought that at any rate we should not have done so. We know nothing at all. The seeds of every sin are latent in our hearts even when they are renewed And they only need occasion or carelessness and withdrawal of God's grace for a season to put forth an abundant crop. End quote. You ought to be able to swear by that. I cannot measure the, I cannot measure the, or assess my own heart, but I know this, it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. By the way, that's not my assessment of my heart. Guess whose assessment that is? It's the Lord's assessment of my heart. Scripture says the man who trusts in his heart is a fool fool. And so we ought not to ever say anything with bold confidence or ever assert that we know what we would do, that we would not fall like others, that we would not fail like others, that we would not deny like others, that we would, that we, given the same circumstances, we would never do that. How many of you said that about Adam? Living in paradise? Right? Give up all of that for a woman and a piece of fruit? I would never fall like Adam fell. That's a lie. You would have done the exact same thing that Adam did in those circumstances. That's why he's your representative. Because you would have fallen just like Adam did. We all would. We can never say that I would never do this. 
Because my heart is not that wicked. Have you ever thought to yourself, that sin I would never be tempted to commit? Have you ever thought that? You're a fool. Have you ever thought that error I would never fall into? You're a fool. You can't say that. Because our hearts are desperately wicked. So that is Peter's courage promised. He promises this to the Lord. Now look at his cowardice predicted. And this is at the end of verse uh, verse 38, the end of the chapter. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Suddenly that sounds so silly, doesn't it? I will lay down my life for you. By the way, that is the almost the identical phrase that Jesus uses in John 10 when describing the shepherd dying for his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. I have authority to take it, up, uh, lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And Peter is borrowing the language of Jesus describing that he would die for his sheep. Peter is borrowing that and saying, I will lay down my life for you. And, and when Jesus re- rebukes him, it's almost, it, it almost makes Peter sound silly. Will you die for me? And he uses the very same language. Peter, are you really are going to lay down your life in my stead? And the opposite is the truth. The truth. And the minute Jesus said it, it had to have sound, sounded silly because it is, a re, it is a rebuke. It is a reproof. It's a gentle one. I don't think that Jesus did this to slap Peter down. And I don't think that Jesus did this with any kind of condescension or lack of grace or lack of love or anything. I think that Jesus did this with loving, loving tone, uh, a, a, a loving manner. But he's saying to Peter, Peter, you have no idea what you are saying. You are once again talking out of the top of your head without really thinking about what it is that you are saying. Will you die in my place? Because just saying that, Peter had to have remembered all of the times when Jesus said that he would die in Peter's place. Because once again, the opposite is the case. It's not Peter who would die for Jesus. It is Jesus who would die for Peter. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, I think that would have shocked Peter. And I think that none of the rest of the disciples who heard Jesus uttered that would have expected that that would be true of Peter. I think when Peter said, I will die for you and I would be willing to die for you, all of the other disciples said, yeah, yeah, not only would Peter be willing to die for you, but me too, me too. All of them would have said, of all the people here, Peter is the most impetuous. Peter is the one who would step up. Peter would die for Jesus. And if these words had come from anybody other than Jesus, I think the person would have been laughed at. What? Suggesting that Peter would deny the Lord? No way. But when Jesus says it, suddenly it is a reproof. And Peter was silenced, by the way. I think this took all the wind out of Peter's sails that night. In chapter 14, Philip speaks to Jesus. Uh, Thomas speaks to Jesus. The other Judas speaks to Jesus. The rest of the disciples speak to Jesus. Peter is silent for the rest of the evening. Because Jesus said to him, not only do you have it backwards, it's opposite. You will not die for me, but you will deny me. Not only will you not follow me, you will actually deny that you even know me. Not once, and not twice, but three times. And not three times over the course of many years. Three times before dawn, you will deny that, deny that you know me. Wow, what a reproof that is, huh? To have your, your bold confidence suddenly turned right upside down on its head, and you realize, my feet have just been taken right off from underneath of me. And, and I don't think that Peter, Jesus intended to rebuke Peter, but I think he certainly felt rebuked. And he certainly felt small. I would have kept my mouth shut for the rest of the evening too. Because the Lord, when He reproved Peter, did it for that point. By, by the way, just I think that there is a reason why Jesus predicted this, and I don't want to miss this before we move on. The reason Jesus predicted this for Peter is so that when these things would come to pass, Peter and the disciples would realize that Jesus knew all of this. Why did Peter not go to the length of despair that Judas did? 
Why didn't Peter commit suicide after denying his Lord like that? Judas did. I think that this is a grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in showing Peter, look, I know exactly what you are going to do. I know your heart. I know the future. I know where you're at. And yet I love you still. And that later on when Peter would deny the Lord Jesus, though he would feel remorse, though he would feel like he had abandoned the Lord, like he had made the ultimate failure and failed at, at, at the most crucial of points, even though Peter would feel that, he would not despair entirely because he would reflect back upon it and said, Jesus knew that I was going to do this. And by His grace, He loves me still. This shows not only that Jesus knows all things, but He knows all people. And there's something terrifying and yet comforting and encouraging in that realization that Jesus knows all things and He knows all people. The terrifying part of it is this, that every thought and every motive and every action of my heart and every wickedness conceived and known and unknown by me and in me, in my heart, He knows all of it fully. Every thought, every motive, every action, past, present, and future, He knows it fully. That terrifies me. Here's the comforting thing. Every act, every motive of my heart, He knows it fully. Now that comforts me, and here's why. Because He has promised that He will not lose me. He has promised to love me. He has promised to save me and secure me and bring me and present me faultless before His throne with exceeding joy, blameless in the presence of His Father. That is His promise. So since He knows me fully, there is nothing that I can do Nothing I have ever done and nothing that I will ever do which will surprise him and make him abandon his resolve to save me. Because in spite of knowing me fully, he loves me fully to the nth degree. He loves his own, John 13 says, even to the end. Remember that passage at the beginning of the chapter? He loved his own even to the end, even to the fullness, even to the the completeness he loved them. There was no lack of his love, lack in his love for Peter even though he knew fully everything Peter would do that evening. And even though Peter had failed, would fail so miserable, miserably, and even failed in Peter's own bold prediction of his courage. His promise of his courage was itself a failure. And the comforting fact is that there is nothing in this life or in the life to come, no created thing, no height, no depth, no angel, no demon, no principality, nothing that can what? Separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. That's the encouragement. And so when we look at the failure of Peter, we ought to be encouraged that even in our failure, we know that the Savior, the Good Shepherd, loved us anyway, died for us anyway, saves us anyway, has secured us anyway, and will bring us safely to His eternal kingdom. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, we thank You for this encouragement from Your Word and for the reminder of that all that we have and all that we do and all that we are, we are dependent upon Your grace. We are dependent upon your grace fully, not only for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. Teach us, we pray, never to trust in flesh, never to trust in our hearts, never to to boldly proclaim what we think we are able to do without Christ, for we know that without him we can do nothing. And so we are dependent upon him. And so teach us, teach us never to trust in our own hearts, but always trust in Christ. And may you increase our resolve and our confidence in your beloved Son. Give us courage and boldness to speak your word without fear, And give us grace in the midst of hostility to be bold witnesses for Christ, never to deny Him. May we learn from this the faithfulness of our precious Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.